We are continuing our study in Philippians, which is a letter, remember, from jail to a house church in the ancient city of Philippi, uh, which is now today in modern day Greece. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, again, page 982. I'll read the passage and then we'll pray to God to ask him to open our eyes and our hearts to his word. This is God's word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, my true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice and let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Again, this is God's word. Let's just pray for a moment before we dig in. Lord, speak for your servants here are listening. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. On Wednesday afternoon, I received a group text from one of my best men. Yes, I had two best men. I couldn't choose. Says something about my personality, probably. Well, one of them uh, sent a group text, and this is what he wrote. Thinking of each of you tonight, he lives overseas. As I read the news of Billy Graham dying, it has reminded of a conversation that we had at the Sands. Yes, we called our house that we lived together Sands Hotel, which is, yes, referring to that, those people, the Rat Pack. How one day the Billy Grahams of the world would no longer be around, and how a new generation would need to step in to be used by God and grow His church. Then how we knelt and prayed and told the Lord that we wanted to make ourselves available to be those types of men surrendered and willing if he would so choose to use us thankful for how he has answered those prayers and by his grace he uses us to build his kingdom say what you want to say about billy graham's complicated legacy but you can say this after 99 years he stood firm he stayed true and so i responded to that text uh, from my friend with a prayer God, may I stand firm all the days of my life. This is a prayer that I actually have for all of you as well. I want all of you to stand firm. All the days of your life. We are trained, day one, to take the path of least resistance. To give up the faith, especially when things get hard or complicated or discouraging. And so when I read verse 1 of chapter 4, I see it as a window into Paul's pastoral heart. And you can, I'm telling you, see it as a window into my pastoral heart. Stand firm, friends. 
you are going to encounter many situations in your life where you will want to give up the race. Stand firm, friends. Do you see his heart for the church in Philippi? He calls them my brothers and sisters whom I long for, my joy, my crown. Stand firm. And then to top it off, he says, those whom I love, my beloved. Stand firm. Listen, I love you guys. Stand firm. Of course, Paul, and I wouldn't either, doesn't tell you to stand firm on your own resources. What does he say? He says, stand firm in the Lord. And if you were with us last week, you remember I called that our spiritual ready stance. Paul sees this ready stance in the Lord, where we're standing firm in the Lord as a result or flowing from Jesus' sure return. Which is why he says, therefore, at the beginning of verse 1. But he also is pointing forward to what follows in his letter with the word thus. If you see it, he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. In other words, stand firm like this, like what I'm about to tell you. And so this verse is very much a hinge. It points backwards to what Paul had argued about Jesus' return in his gospel. But then it also points forward so as to suggest this is what it means to stand firm. Listen, standing firm is not standing still. And so what follows is what it looks like to stand firm. And they have to do with our relationships. Our relationships to the church, our relationships to our circumstances, and our relationship to the city we live in. And we're going to look at each in turn this morning. So first, our relationship to the church. Something that I will call realignment. Because if we are going to stand firm, we are going to need to tend to our relationships in the church today. Paul says in verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What Paul is calling for in this verse is gospel realignment. You have relationships that need this too. Realignment to the gospel. How do we realign? Well, first, get together. Notice how Paul isn't authoritarian, making judgments from afar. He entreats both Euodia and Syntyche. And the word here is for entreat, parakaleo, which means to come alongside. And so Paul comes alongside Euodia and comes alongside Syntyche from afar. And he says, agree in the Lord, which is the same word he uses in chapter two, verse five, when he says, have this mind among yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, you don't have to agree on everything. But agree in the Lord. So get together. Second, get help. Paul is realistic about the relationships in the church. And this is why he says in verse 3, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, we don't know who this true companion is. And it really doesn't matter. What matters is that somebody is standing by ready to help them work things out. Sometimes an outside voice or a mediator helps with realignment. 
Get together, get help, but thirdly, get perspective. Paul then gives us important perspective on why we should realign. Euodia and Syntyche, and now I'm quoting Paul, have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let me just first say as an aside, what Paul writes here would be explosive in a religious religious culture and societal culture that denigrated women. Some say feminism began in 1792 with Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, I see here a pretty explosive statement. Remember, Philippians' founding members were two women. Lydia, who was wealthy and independent, and an unnamed slave girl, who was owned and exploited. And abused by her owner. This is in Acts 16. You can read about it. And so it shouldn't surprise us that there are strong women in this church. Paul isn't calling Euodia and Syntyche out because he's a misogynist. Oh, these are just quarrelous women. No, I think he's calling Euodia and Syntyche out because he recognizes And celebrates their influence. It is important that they work things out. Paul calls them co-laborers and co-workers in the proclamation of the gospel. And he says they're both written in the Lord's book of life. Which means they are co-heirs of all of God's blessings through Christ. They are on the same team. Which, in my opinion, changes the frame. And we should help them align. Us too. We could call this the million year test. The million year test. In any conflict or disagreement, you should ask yourself, where will the two of us be in a million years? And my guess is that will help you realign. Doesn't mean you need to agree on everything. But you can agree in the Lord. Our family has a Bob stroller. Do you know what these glorious devices are? Bob stroller, yes. And occasionally I run with Lou, our littlest. Uh, well, there is an adjustment screw on the front wheel that if, and, and you can twist it to align it with the back two wheels. You know what I'm talking about? And this way you can run and kind of, kind of let go of it, and it goes straight. Well, that little screw, if you just turn it a little bit this way or a little bit that way, our little boy Lou will be in the middle of the street. It's amazing. It's dangerous. We need to, and I constantly need to, realign that wheel every single time I go out running with that thing. And similarly, we need to realign. We need to adjust that screw with our relationships constantly. If we are to stand firm in the Lord. So what does this look like? Well, I have an example from this last week. Uh, I said some careless words in a meeting. 
And later that day, I received a very clear but very kind email. Explaining how my words were hurtful. And I got really, really, really defensive in my heart. But then after I prayed about it, I saw the pride and the carelessness in my words. And so I asked for forgiveness and we were instantly realigned. Gospel realignment is what it looks like to stand firm. There's something else though in this text. Standing firm also looks like not just realignment, but rejoicing. Our relationships to our circumstances. Paul says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So my wife and I uh, were at Chick-fil-A the other day, which is happening more frequently now that it's down the street from our house. Happened frequently before, frankly. We would make the drive to Stringtown Road. Well, she was reading a book uh, for her book club, which was a sort of self-helpy book on happiness and joy and flourishing. And we were talking about the difference between Christian joy and the popular view of joy or happiness in our culture. And this verse actually answers that question. What is the difference? Very well. This single verse, verse 4. Three differences. And the first is this. Christian joy is a command. Isn't that interesting? I think this is easy to forget. The Bible commands us to rejoice. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then you can hear the church saying, but Paul, you're in jail, first of all. Awaiting death, second of all. And third of all, we're kind of in your same boat. To which Paul says, again, I say, Rejoice. Wow. Secondly, though, it's a constant. Christian joy is a command. It's also a constant. Paul doesn't say rejoice when you get good news. He says rejoice always, which is one of the most devastating words in the Bible. Always. And it makes this command Even more devastating. Because we cannot control our joy, can we? Which brings us to the third most all-important difference between worldly joy and Christian joy. And it's this, and listen carefully. Christian joy is Christ-centered. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Which means the source of our joy is never changing, even when, especially when, our circumstances are ever changing. Jesus is our joy. And if Jesus is our joy, then yes, this command is possible to obey. Michael Reeves says this, he says, sometimes we find ourselves tiring of Jesus. Amen? Can we admit that in this church? We can. You can admit it in front of me because I admit it too. We find ourselves tiring of Jesus. He goes on. Stupidly imagining that we have seen all there is to see and used up all the pleasure there is to be had in him. We get spiritually bored. 
Listen, there's some insight in this quote. But Jesus has satisfied the mind and heart of the infinite God for eternity. So our boredom is spiritual blindness. If the Father can be infinitely and eternally satisfied in Jesus, then He must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us. Yesterday, we were at a birthday party with a piñata. <laughs> and when the thing bursts, you know what happens, right? I love watching kids just hoard the candy. And it's proof of the doctrine of sin, that moment as well. <laughs> because they're just scrambling for candy, for piñata candy. Well, it's been said that our culture tells us to hoard joy, present joy, much like kids hoard piñata candy when it bursts. All the while dreading the future. What Jesus offers you is something different. You can actually make peace with or sit in sadness and difficulty because you know of a coming joy. And you don't even... You don't only know of a coming joy, which is Jesus. You taste it presently today. Do you know salvation is not merely, it's importantly, but not merely a a rescuing from eternal judgment. It is that. But it is also a bringing up into the joy of the Trinity. Father delighting in the Son. Son delighting in the Father. Holy Spirit. And when we are united to Jesus, we are invited into that joy, that eternal joy. So that when Jesus says, I give you eternal life, he's not just talking about years. He's talking about a quality of life, which is experiencing the joy that the Father has for the Son. And so that, yes, you can rejoice in all circumstances. So let's all commit to waking up each morning and getting our hearts happy in Jesus. Nothing will knock you down quicker than waking up to your smartphone. Do not do it. I'm telling you from experience. I would even suggest grabbing a bound Bible instead of using your phone Bible. Because you know you'll be checking your email or Twitter or Facebook. And I'm telling you, nothing, nothing will knock you down quicker than doing that every morning. Instead, open your Bible and fight for joy. Fight for it. Fight for joy in Jesus. Because if you do not, as the old hymn says, ponder anew what the Almighty can do, then you will get knocked down. Ponder anew every morning what the Almighty can do if with His love He befriend thee. And He does. We will not stand firm unless we ponder anew and rejoice. Finally, Paul shifts our focus from our relationships to our circumstances to now the city that we live in. Because he writes, 
In our last verse, verse 5, if you look down, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What does he mean by reasonable? Well, the word is epiitis. Kids, that sounds like an epic eye kiss, whatever that is. Or maybe your parents give you an epic eye kiss when you go to bed. The ESV translates this word reasonable. The NIV translates this word gentle. Still doesn't help, does it? Let's let our epic eye kiss be known to everyone. What does that mean? Well, good rulers and judges are in the scriptures called epiicus. So that God is epiicus in Psalm 86.5. Describing his gentle and reasonable rule. Uh, In Columbus, Ohio, Judge Paul Herbert, who started Catch Court, is epiicus. About 10 years ago, when he saw a woman come into his court with bruises, he just assumed, here is a victim of domestic abuse. But when he looked at her file and found out that she was a defendant and not a victim, he was surprised. And after researching human trafficking... And prostitution in Columbus, he saw that these women are guilty of a crime, but also victimized in a vicious cycle. And so he created a compassionate and merciful and just rehabilitation program called Catch Court. Judge Paul Herbert is epiicus. God is Epiacus. And that's what it looks like to be Epiacus with power. But what does it mean to be Epiacus uh, without power? Which frankly is the position of Paul, who's in jail, remember, and the Philippian church, who were persecuted. So what does it look like to be Epiacus without power? Well, it means we respond to insults from enemies, any kind of persecution or setback, with the same kind of compassion and mercy. To be Epiacus is to mount, in the words of Jack Miller, a love offensive. No matter what. If we were as a church to obey verse 5, we would be known for our love offensive. Not for what offends us, but for what we're doing to love others. We would therefore let our reasonableness, our gentleness, our epiicus be known to all. The early church witness were doing just that. Loving others when they were being thrown into the Colosseum. And we are able to do this, Paul says, because why? The Lord is near. Near in time and near in space. The Lord is near in time. He's coming back. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf says the practice of nonviolence, or you could expand that to say the practice of loving others, especially when they are persecuting you, 
the practice of blessing your enemy, even as they throw you into the Colosseum, that practice is possible, he says, and requires a belief in divine vengeance. If you believe Jesus is judge, and he will right all wrongs, then you now are, are relieved of the burden to do it yourself. And you can mount a love offensive. You can love your enemies, as Jesus says. And you can, on the cross, even say, forgive them, they know not what they do. As Jesus did. He's near in time, and he's also near in place. The Lord is near, as the psalmist writes, to the brokenhearted. We are in Christ. We have everything we need, which means we can regard others as more significant than ourselves, which is Paul's words in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 3 and 4. He says, you can regard others, you can regard others, everybody, as more significant than yourself, which is impossible to do if our model for humanhood is an empty cup that constantly needs filled by others. But what if we are in Christ and therefore have everything we need, then we can go to another person and not use them, but love them. We can mount a love offensive. Stand firm. Stand firm. Standing firm is not standing still. It's realignment. It's rejoicing. It's being reasonable, which again, remember, is a love offensive. The death of Billy Graham, uh, he's has been called by many an end of an era, which I think is accurate. But for me, it reminds me of how short life in ministry can be. It's one of those awarenesses where you're like, wow, I'm not going to live forever. And the church goes on. How vital it is for us to stand firm. How vital is it? And to do this, we need to be in the Lord's grip. Remember, all of these three things. Standing firm. As we realign, he's saying, agree in the Lord. As we rejoice, he's saying, rejoice in the Lord. As he says, let your reasonableness be known to all. It's because of what the Lord has done. Standing firm in the Lord. Here's the thing. We will not stand firm unless we understand at the core of who we are that God is holding us up underneath our armpits. Isn't that all the courage you need to stand firm? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this uh, text. Thank you for this encouragement. Thank you for Paul's pastoral heart to this church and to even our church by your Holy Spirit. I just ask, Lord, that it would happen in our midst, that we would be known for our love offensive as a church, that we would be known for our joy, this sort of hard-to-explain joy that can only come from you and your Spirit, and that we would be known for our relationships, that we could agree in the Lord. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.